Uh, I'm the vicar here. It's a real uh, treat to see you. And uh, as you're sitting down, why not grab a Bible, uh, grab a handful of Bibles. They should be at the end. Pass them down um, the row so everyone can get a look at it. And turn, if you would, uh, to page 1089. Page 1089, uh, John's Gospel. And it's John uh, chapter 20, page 1089. John chapter 20. And I'm going to read... Um, a few verses from there. Now, we're in this series on challenging Christianity, and the subject we're thinking about this evening, the question is, shouldn't the Bible be replaced by science? And I'm going to read this uh, passage, and uh, then we'll try and tackle the question. Quite a big one. Um, John chapter 20, starting at verse 24, says this. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do keep it open, uh, that Bible passage, but uh, let me pray before we begin. <coughs> Lord God, would you help me as I speak? And would you be at work amongst each one of us this evening? Would you take each one of us where the evidence leads? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, just before Christmas, I was um, leading a local school's carol service here in this church. The church was absolutely packed, and uh, at the end, I um, bumped into a parent of uh, one of the, the boys at the school uh, who I'd been at university with. I hadn't seen her for 23 years, uh, but uh, we said hello. It's lovely to see her again. She introduced me to her husband and then to her 10-year-old boy. And the conversation between me and the boy went something as follows. Nice to meet you, Cosmo, or whatever his name was. Hello. I don't believe in God. Oh, well, that's, that's very interesting, Cosmo. Uh, why is it that you, you don't believe in God? Because I have never heard an interesting or convincing talk at church. Now, at which point, his parents were getting a little embarrassed about sort of where the direction of this conversation was heading. So uh, the mum intervened, and she said, come on, Cosmo, of course, that would all change. You've never actually ever heard a talk by Jago. If you heard a talk by Jago, then things would be very different. Yes, I have. I've heard of several of his talks, actually. <laughs> now, uh, here is the big question for you, for me for Cosmo, for all the other big thinkers out there in this world, as we think about this subject of science and the Bible, here is the question. As you and I, as we look out on this world that we inhabit, a galaxy that contains 100 billion stars, human bodies that each contain 25 trillion red blood cells, 
As we look out on a world that gives us such staggering beauty of sunsets and and mountain ranges and staggering joys of coral reefs and sticky toffee puddings, and yet we look out on a world that gives us the horrors of tsunamis and famines and coronavirus outbreaks. As you look out on a world like that, this universe, this universe that we all call home, the question is what worldview best makes sense of the evidence before us? Is it Christian theism, Christianity? Is it a belief that God exists and has revealed himself to us in Jesus? So I read a bit from the end of John's Gospel, but right at the beginning, the first chapter of John's Gospel, John 1 verse 18, it says this, it says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So does Christian theism best make sense of the evidence before us? Or is it humanistic atheism? A belief that there is no God, that everything can be explained by science. So take the philosopher Alex Rosenberg, author of The Atheist's Guide to Reality. He writes this, he says, There is so much more to atheism than its knockdown arguments that there is no God. There is the whole rest of the worldview that comes along with atheism. It's a demanding, rigorous, breathtaking grip on reality, one that has been vindicated beyond all reasonable doubt. It's called science. So one view says nothing created something out of nothing. The other view says God created something out of nothing. There are only those two logical possibilities. Which is it? Nothing created something out of nothing, or God created something out of nothing. There's no other option. You know, many people who would call themselves agnostic or take none in the religious question in the survey, they've got to go one way or the other, theist or atheist, God or no God. Which one best makes sense of the evidence before us? Because there is certainly something here, and it's either got to be created by nothing or by some God. You know, sometimes the um, disciple in our Bible reading, Thomas, he's, he's given a bad press. He's known as Doubting Thomas. But, you know, Thomas was no fool. He was no fool. He knew that dead men do not come alive again. And he wouldn't trust in the seemingly absurd reality that his friends were telling him that Jesus Christ was suddenly risen from the dead. He wouldn't trust it until he'd seen it for himself, placed his hands in Jesus' side. He wouldn't believe until he had seen the evidence. And today, I would like us, this evening, I'd like us not to give Thomas a hard time. You know, doubting Thomas, such a loser. I don't want us to do that. I actually want us to take a leaf out of Thomas's book. To be like Thomas, to do what I encourage Cosmo to do, even though he thinks my talks are boring, to look at the evidence. Let's each one of us look at the evidence and decide and determine which worldview best fits the evidence. And to answer this question, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pose to you three statements and show you the evidence to support each one of them. Here's the first one. Statement number one is that science and God are not enemies. 
Many people would say they are. Let me give you one quote. This is um, Peter Atkins. He's the professor of chemistry at Oxford University. He writes this. He says, science and religion cannot be reconciled, and humanity should begin to appreciate the power of science and to beat off all attempts at compromise. Religion has failed, and its failures should be exposed. Science, with its currently successful pursuit of universal competence, should be acknowledged the king. So science is king. And yet other scientists wouldn't agree with him. So take Francis Collins, the former head of the Human Genome Project. He led a team of over 2,000 scientists to determine the three billion letters of the human genome. He's written this. He's written, the God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. He can be worshipped in the cathedral or in the laboratory. One of the greatest tragedies of our time is this impression that has been created that science and religion have to be at war. So who's right? They can't be, both be right. Uh, let me give you a, a sort of simple illustration. Here is, a, I think you'll agree, a masterpiece of a painting here, okay? There is a masterpiece of a painting, and uh, we could get in the world's leading chemist to uh, analyze the, the chemical compounds of these two vibrant colors that make up such a wonderful painting. We could get in the world's leading physicist, and he or she could help us understand the angle and the speed of the brush stroke that created such a, a wonderful masterpiece. We could get in scientists, and they could tell us so much about how this painting was made. They could tell us loads about how it was made. But actually, all the scientists in the world, they could not tell us why this painting was made. And for us to answer that question of why it was made, we would need to get in, not a scientist, but my youngest child, Theo, to come in. And if we got Theo in and we asked him the question, Theo, why did you make this painting? He could tell us, and he'd give you the answer. I made this painting because I wanted to paint a picture of mummy. <laughs> Standing in a river, holding some guns. <laughs> now, that would produce a whole lot more why questions, but we have not got time to answer that. Now, so, here's the point. Here's the point, no amount of scientific analysis and investigation of this earth, rather than Theo's painting, no amount of scientific analysis will tell you why this earth was made, only how it was made. Science answers how, Christianity answers why, and they are not necessarily in contradiction, they are just answering different questions. And let's face it, the conflicts that often come between science and the Bible, when people misunderstand the Bible, like any other piece of writing, when is the Bible meant to be read literally, and when is it meant to be read metaphorically? And when you look at Genesis 1, the very beginning of the Bible, that tells us about the origin of creation, actually, as you read Genesis 1, the literature, it is poetic. It's got this stylized structure. It's got the six days that you probably know about, and it's got the same structure of each of these six days. And it talks about these six days, but actually you do not get the creation of the sun and the separation into day and night. That doesn't actually come in the story until day four. So how on earth have you got the first three days if the sun and the split between day and night doesn't exist until day four? It's not meant to be read literally. It's not sort of literal 24-hour periods. It is, Genesis 1, poetic. So there's no necessary conflict between evolution, which attempts to describe the mechanism of creation, and the beginning of the book of Genesis, which describes the meaning of creation. 
And just think about it for a moment. Uh, Usually, the more that we understand about some beautiful, complex creation, say a Van Gogh painting rather than a Theo Wynne painting, the more we understand that thing, the more we admire the genius of its creator. And so for many scientists, not all scientists, of course, but for many scientists, the more they understand how the universe works, the more they admire the genius of a creator God who made this world to operate in the way it does and the God who tells us why he made it. You see, God no more competes with science as an explanation of the universe than Vincent van Gogh competes with science as an explanation of the painting of the sunflowers. Science and God, they are not enemies. The second statement that I want to pose to you may be perhaps the most surprising of the three, and it's this, that whilst science and God, whilst they are not enemies, science and atheism are enemies. Let me give you three blocks of evidence for this. First block of evidence is the problem of the trustworthy mind. Now, I'm going to sort of skip over going in this one in detail just due to time, but it's basically saying that an atheistic, evolutionary worldview undermines the idea of you and me having rational minds. And rational minds are the one thing that we need to do science in the first place. So as a worldview, it contradicts itself. And actually, Charles Darwin himself, he, and he's going to come up here, a quote by him, him and his very impressive beard there, just look at what Charles Darwin said. He saw the contradiction himself. This is what he writes. He says, With me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. And that leads to the second problem. That is the problem of living out your worldview. Because no atheistic scientist actually truly lives out their worldview. If we are no more than the journey of our evolutionary story, If, as Richard Dawkins has famously written, the universe, we observe, has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. If that is true, then how come atheists act as though they do believe in evil and good? How come they act as though they do trust in their minds being rational? How come they do recognize that love for other people, it seems to be more than just an accidental byproduct of evolution? Uh, To give you a sort of slightly punchy example, female chimpanzees are routinely sexually assaulted by male chimpanzees. On what basis does someone with an atheistic mindset say that whilst they are not trying to stop this this sexual assault happening amongst chimpanzees, that they are supportive of the Me Too movement that discourages sexual assault amongst humans? Because everyone, whatever their worldview is, everyone seems to live out the view that human beings are distinct from all other animals at a fundamental level. Now, Christians have an obvious reason for this, the claim that we humans, we alone, are made in the image of God, unlike all other animals. But the atheist cannot give a reason as to why we should treat some things differently between humans 
and between chimpanzees. And the atheist cannot give a reason as to why some things are evil and some things are good. And then the final reason that atheism and science are enemies is the problem of scientific evidence. You see, again and again, scientific atheism has actually been challenged by the evidence. So take all the evidence pointing towards a big bang that came about in the 20th century. You know, the idea that the universe has a starting point. That the universe isn't eternal with no beginning. That actually there was a moment in time, billions of years ago, when there was a big bang that the universe actually started. Stephen Hawking, who, who was you know, instrumental in all that, he wrote this. He said, many people do not like the idea that time has a beginning. Why? Probably because it smacks of divine intervention. There were, therefore, a number of attempts to avoid the conclusion that there had been a big bang. But the reality is all the evidence stacked up over the 20th century pointing towards this moment of creation. Or, or more recently, how about all the evidence for the fine-tuning of the universe? So Stephen Hawking, again, he wrote this. He said, if the density of the universe one second after the Big Bang had been greater by one part in a thousand billion, the universe would have re-collapsed after ten years. On the other hand, if the density of the universe at that time had been less by the same amount, the universe would have been essentially empty since it was about ten years old. How was it that the original initial density of the universe was chosen so carefully? Maybe there is some reason why the universe should have precisely the critical density. Maybe. You see, Professor Chandra Wickram Singer, he writes this. He says, the chances that life just occurred on Earth are about as unlikely as a typhoon blowing through a junkyard and constructing a Boeing 747. Now, none of those things actually prove that there is a God, but they certainly point in the direction that there is a God. Uh, Martin Rees was a, a Cambridge professor of astrophysics. Until recently, he was the president of the Royal Society, and he would describe himself as an atheist. And he writes that in light of the Big Bang, in light of all the fine-tuning of this universe, there are three possible explanations. Here is three possible explanations. Number one, pure chance. And Rees says this is so incredibly unlikely that it is not plausible. Number two, that there is a God who intended for this universe to generate life, so designed it for life to be possible. And Martin Rees acknowledges that that is a reasonable view that is held by some of his colleagues who are Christians. Or number three option, he says there's not just one universe, but there are zillions of parallel universes, each governed by different laws. This is the multiverse theory that some of you may have heard of. And he says, our particular universe happens to, the, to be the one known universe set up to be able to sustain life on our planet. Now, Professor Martin Rees and many other atheistic scientists choose to believe in number three, the multiverse theory. Yet it is impossible to fully test that theory because we are, by definition, confined to this universe. We can't observe anything beyond this universe. And even if the multiverse does exist, even if there are lots of universes, that still doesn't actually rule out God in any way. 
And so that leads to the third and final statement that I want to show you the evidence for. And that is that faith and reason are not enemies. Here's the reality. Both Christian theism and humanistic atheism both involve faith. Think of that multiverse theory that I just mentioned there. It cannot be fully tested. So it involves faith, doesn't it? It can't be fully tested. You can't see it. We can't see if there are lots of universes exist or not. So it requires faith. I love this quote by Nobel Prize winning um, physicist William Phillips. He says this. He says, I see an orderly, beautiful universe in which nearly all physical phenomena can be understood from a few simple mathematical equations. I see a universe that, had it been constructed slightly differently, would never have given birth to stars and planets, let alone bacteria and people. And there is no good scientific reason for why the universe should not have been different. Many good scientists have concluded from these observations that an intelligent God must have chosen to create the universe with such beautiful, simple, and life-giving properties. Many other equally good scientists are nevertheless atheists. Both conclusions are positions of faith. Now, there are some people that would disagree with what he's written there, most notably Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins writes this. He says, the whole point of religious faith, so when he thinks about religious faith, the whole point of religious faith, its strength and chief glory, is that it does not depend on rational justification. But I'm afraid that Richard Dawkins has got it badly wrong here. Because the opposite of faith for the Christian, the opposite of faith for us is not reason, the opposite is not evidence, the opposite is not rational justification. No, the opposite of Christian faith, it is sight. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is assurance about what we do not see. So Christian faith, it is not some sort of random, blind leap of faith into the dark. No, it's not. No, Christian faith is belief in something that we cannot see, God yet which can be trusted on the basis of reasonable, reason-through, thought-out evidence. The atheist cannot visibly see that there is no God, just as the Christian cannot visibly see that there is God. Rather, there is evidence for the unseen, and we need to assess that evidence. Both worldviews are based on faith. And you see, this is where you and I diverge from Thomas in our Bible reading. Because you see, Thomas, he had the luxury of looking at the evidence with his own eyes. There's Thomas, and suddenly he meets with the risen Jesus. He can see Jesus with his eyes. He can touch Jesus' sides and touch those wounds. He could do it all. He could see it right there. Just look what happens. Verse 27. Look at verse 27 in our passage. As Thomas sees the risen Jesus... Verse 27, Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. And what happens? Well, as Thomas touches Jesus, as Thomas touches the evidence, as he sees it with his own eyes, he says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. As Thomas sees the evidence, he believes that Jesus is God. But of course, you and I, we can't be like Thomas because we cannot see the evidence. We can't see the risen Jesus right there. We can't actually reach out and touch Jesus. That's where we're different. 
But you know, we come into this story, and we come into this story in the next verse. Just have a look at it. Look at the next verse, verse 29. It says, Then Jesus told Thomas, Because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen. That's you and me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You and I, we have not seen Jesus with our own eyes, but we are people who look at the evidence and we assess that evidence. The atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell, uh, he was once asked what he would say if he died and he found himself confronted by God and God asking him why he had not believed in God. Not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence, was Bertrand Russell's reply. But I'd imagine that God would probably have replied to Bertrand Russell something like what John writes in the next verse of our passage. Just look at the next verse, verse 30. I think he would have said something like this to Bertrand Russell. Verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, God has given us, he's given you, me, Cosmo, Bertrand Russell, were he alive, he has given us everything that we need here in this book. He has given us everything that we need, all the evidence we need, particularly the evidence about Jesus, who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And the question is, what will we do with this evidence? In the final five minutes, what I'd love to do is just say a few words, particularly to those here who have come into church tonight unsure whether God exists. And I hope if that's you, I hope today that you have seen that science and God are not incompatible. I hope you've seen that. And I hope you have been challenged by the evidence. Take Professor Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew was one of the most influential, humanistic, atheistic philosophers of modern times. And in 2004, he changed his mind. He abandoned his commitment to atheism, and in his words, he simply had to go where the evidence leads. And he recognized that the case for God is now much stronger than it was before. And more than that, as I've suggested, the worldview of specifically, not just theism, but, but specifically Christian theism. The worldview of Christianity says that the best evidence for God's existence is not so much science and Christianity not conflicting, although they don't. But actually, the best evidence is the fact that the creator of this world has entered into his creation. Uh, Richard Dawkins, he's written this. He says, if God existed and chose to reveal it, God himself could clinch the argument noisily and unequivocally in his favor. Now, it may not have been particularly noisy. But 2,000 years ago, God did just that in Jesus. And so I want to encourage you this evening Above all, please would you investigate the claims of Jesus who claimed to be God. Because certainly for me, as I examined the evidence for Jesus at age 17, I came to the conclusion that it was far, far, far more probable that Jesus Christ was God rather than any other option. As I looked at Jesus' teaching, as I looked at his character, as I looked at his miracles, and I looked for the as I looked for the, at the evidence for the resurrection, as I saw all these things, it was so much more probable that Jesus was God rather than anything else. But please don't just take my word for it. 
Let, let me um, read you a longer extract from Francis Collins, the guy who was the former head of the Human Genome Project. This is his story. He writes this. He says, I was raised by free-thinking parents for whom religion was just not very important. I first became an agnostic and then an atheist. One afternoon, a kindly grandmother with only a few weeks to live shared her own faith in Jesus quite openly with me and then asked, Doctor, what do you believe? I fled the room, having the disturbing sense that the atheist ice under my feet was cracking, though I wasn't quite sure why. And then suddenly, the reason for my disquiet hit me. I was a scientist. I was supposed to make decisions based on evidence, and yet I had never really considered the evidence for and against faith. And as I explored the evidence more deeply, all around me I began to see signposts to something outside of nature that can only be called God. And I realized that the scientific methods can really only answer questions about how things work. It can't answer questions about why, and those in fact are the most important ones. Why is there something instead of nothing? Why is the universe so precisely tuned to make life possible? Why do we humans have a universal sense of right and wrong and an urge to do right? Confronted with these revelations, I realized that my own assumption that faith was the opposite of reason, that it was incorrect. I should have known better. Scripture defines faith as the subject of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Simultaneously, I realized that atheism was in fact the least rational of all choices. He says, after searching for two more years, I ultimately found my own answer in the loving person of Jesus Christ. Here was a man unlike any other. He was humble and kind-hearted. He reached out to those considered lowest in society. He made astounding statements about loving your enemies. And he promised something that no ordinary man should be able to promise, to forgive sins. Eventually, I concluded, the evidence demanded a verdict. In my 28th year, I could no longer deny my need for forgiveness and a new life. And I gave in and became a follower of Jesus. He is now the rock upon which I stand, the source for me of ultimate love, peace, joy, and hope. You see, there comes a time when we've checked out the main evidence. And there comes a time for each one of us, as Francis Collins says, when the evidence demands a verdict. And we need to give up our detached distance from God. And we need to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because the Christian faith, it is reasonable. It's reasonable. It's based on evidence, on reason, on good, reliable evidence. But the Christian faith, it is also relational. It's a relationship. It's a relationship where we don't just remain cold and detached and distant. But as we put our trust, as we put our belief in Jesus, you and I, we experience the unmerited, extravagant love of God. The Christian faith is very simply about believing in Jesus. And by believing, having life in his name. I want to ask you, will you experience that life, that wonderful life, 
Will you experience that life today? Shall we pray as we sit? Let's pray. I wonder this evening if there are a few of us here, a bit like Francis Collins was age 28, a bit like I was age 17. And actually, you've got to this point where you have seen the main evidence for Christianity. And you're recognizing the evidence demands a verdict. And you recognize that today is the day you need to give up your detached distance from God and put your belief in Jesus. And so what I'm going to do, I'm just going to pray a very simple prayer. I'm going to pray it in the first person singular. And if today is a day when you want to to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, I'd love you just to echo this prayer just in your heart as I pray. So let's pray. Dear Lord God, I've never seen you, but I've looked at the evidence and it makes sense. And tonight I want to put my faith in you based on this reasonable, rational evidence. Lord Jesus, thank you that you, the creator, came into your creation Thank you that your death and resurrection are the supreme reason that I can know forgiveness for my sin and know your unconditional love. So please, would you come into my life by your spirit that I might experience a relationship with you. Amen.